How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sci-Fi Podcast, episode 224. Your sync clap. Did that hurt? Yeah, it did. I had to, like, so wave shake, it off. shaking your hands there. Jazz hands. Yeah. It's called flapping, Zeke. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah. I was flapping pretty hard. How are you, Jake? Yeah, that's... <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I'm not as sick. My voice is not as deep in no, as last week. So it's returned to its normal form. I know. So all the women have ran away. They're done now. Except your woman. That's true. That's true. I think. I, think. I mean, we didn't talk about <laughs> Kirsty before the show, and that would have been very awkward. Uh, if no, Kirsty is a fan of the deep voice. But you know what? To her credit. She's yes. a fan of my normal voice as well. There we go. So that helps tremendously. Yes. Well, speaking of close encounters... Yes, um, yes, yes. Jake, do you have any, <laughs> you have any <laughs> trivia? It's a travesty. <laughs> do you have any trivia from the mm. film of the week, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? It's the polling. I do, Zeke. I do. Um, there was quite a few that I was really intrigued by going through the list of fun facts for this film I've never seen before yesterday. So there was a lot for me to take in for this kind of film. But the one that really shocked me and I think we're going to be talking about the visual effects of this film quite mm. a bit, especially in regard to the context that this not only came out in the same year as the original Star Wars, but in the same week, which is fascinating. And we, we've now we're, uh, we've done Star Wars, and we're going to do this film as well, so it's good to compare and contrast. But something that Spielberg did, I think, is quite ingenious, is that every single shot that was going to have a VFX, VFX work or a template of VFX um, was shot in 70mm film, and this was so that once the VFX work was overlaid, it would share the same amount of film grain as the 35mm, which the rest of the film was shot on. So that way, because I think he noticed audiences could tell when a VFX shot was about to happen because of the change in grain and noise on the screen, which is fantastic. Because mm. first off, I'm surprised that audiences in the 70s were that savvy. Yeah. To, I guess it was a psychological thing. Yes. Um, but then also Spielberg's ingenious way of tackling that, so you can't really decipher the VFX shots from the non-VFX mm. shots. So it's all about the all the authenticity, Zeke. And I thought that was quite ingenious. Zeke, what's your fun fact about this film? Um, yeah, look, I'm going to go with some of the inspiration. Obviously, mm. you know, we've, we've covered Spielberg quite recently, but yep. obviously having his biopic come out last year with the Fablemans, um, I find that this is quite an interesting piece of trivia. It's partly inspired by an experience that Steven Spielberg had in his childhood without advance warning his parents rushed him uh, and the children into their car one night drove him to an area where many others were gathered and watched a spectacular meteor shower obviously mm. this film sort of explodes, explores the themes of searching for something out there something greater yeah. um, and even when others resist and find you mad to do so um, and obviously kind of ties in with the fact that we talked about the Fablemans late last year it does, and there's even that scene that feels directly pulled from not only his childhood, but visually in the Fablements from this film, which is literally the scene where, where his mother would take the kids in the car and they would furiously back out of the driveways. Like That scene is literally in this film, mm. as well as the Fablements, so there's, there's a lot of those connective tissues there, so to speak. Um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about with not only the visual effects, but Spielberg, because I think this film came in an incredibly interesting time in his mm-hmm. career, but Zeke... Would you... Well, do you believe this film is on the 1100 Films poster behind you? You must watch Before You Die. It's a toughie, isn't it? Because obviously given that year is a busy year and it's especially it's very busy sci-fi. Year. I'm going to go yes. It is. Yeah. It is indeed on the poster. 
Um, and I'm glad it is because I think not only is this a very important film, but again, very important for Spielberg at the time. It's keep in mind, this is the first thing he did after Jaws. Yes. Which I think is very important. And I don't, I don't know quite, I, I'm sure the budget for this was quite a lot bigger. I would assume I haven't actually checked that. Um, but in terms of creative freedom, after making something like Jaws, I'm, I'm sure he would have been given the the reins to do whatever the hell he wanted. And and as as big as this film is, and as commercial, I think it is a commercial film ultimately, but there's a lot in it that feels mm. very personal and feels a little risque and experimental for Spielberg. Yeah, so it's double the budget. It goes from $9 wow. million to $19.4 million. There you go. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. Very excited to talk about this later in the show. I, I don't know if we're going to have much of a first half at all, Z, because I've watched very little in this last week. Latest episode of Succession? Yes, yes, I'm up to date. Living Plus Seek. <laughs> You're going to learn all about Living Plus. You shall see what, what that is. Speaking of HBO, the one thing I will say that I've been binging, and I go through phases, Zeke, where I just like binge on YouTube certain videos, and lately I've gone through a last week tonight with John Oliver binge. Okay. He's just... Do you watch John Oliver at all? I find... I mean, he's in commu- the first season of Community. Okay. incredible. Well, first couple of seasons, and he's very funny. Right. Okay, but you don't watch his late night stuff? No, I've seen bits and bobs, but I can't sure. say I like have gone on a binge fest for John Oliver. Oh, no. it's awesome. To be fair, it's, it's really good as like background noise. As I've been playing a lot of Tetris lately, as you, as anyone for PlayStation 5 does, you play a game from the 80s. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible that's, with that. That's but what they want you to do. It's a great game. It's a great game. I don't care what anyone says. But <laughs> but to that point, it's great to have John Oliver on the back. It's not to say it's not completely visual because he has a lot of uh, primary sources in video forms or a lot of news um, stuff and you know taking snippets from things that authoritarians mm. have said and as part of the overall research. But I have to say, like, props to HBO, not only for just the show in general, because it's easy to sort of not include this in like the HBO lineup of your successions and last of us and white Lotus, all these other you know great shows that they're doing. Not, I haven't seen white Lotus, but I just know that's part of their uh, collection euphoria. I mean, it's mm-hmm. HBO, you know, they're, they're the golden standard for television nowadays. I think it's fair to say, and I think it's easy to not include John Oliver in that sense because it's not, you know, a drama series. But the fact that HBO do the show, which every now and then blows its budgets on very silly things, practical jokes, yeah, so to speak. Um, but it's so well-researched. They upload them all to YouTube, like just these, the full episodes. So that's why I'm able to binge them. <laughs> not to say I'm, I'm pretty sure it's on binge. It probably would be. I so imagine. I could probably just do that as well. Um, and just the variety of the, the topics they covered. I mean, I wrote some of them down, data brokers, AI images, America's relationships with several countries, and that's like different things like um, Afghanistan, for one. Uh, subway, sex work, mental health, bail reform, interrogations, homelessness, rent, all of these. And it's just, it's always brilliant. It's just so brilliantly researched and and scary. And I was saying this to someone the other day, Zeke, like, I always, I try and always, politically speaking, fall on the side of empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, uh, I'm trying to think. Well, even just like say rent. And I think we had a little bit of a rant last week about the um, uh, hex situation, yeah, and student absolutely. loans, and all of that. And it's like I always try and lean on not necessarily the underdog, but like on the empathetic side of let's try and be understanding of why people find themselves in tricky situations. Why do people rent instead of buy? 
I mean, it seems incredibly obvious, but there's a lot of people out there who would just like, ah, well, why don't they just go and buy a house? It's like, it's <laughs> I always land on the side of empathy, and I feel like John Oliver, that those politics align mostly. But then yep. again, they don't always do, because he did an episode on harm reduction, which I never even thought about, necessarily, this idea of a place where people can legally go and do drugs as a, like as in, in a protective environment, so to speak. And that's something I wouldn't have immediately have been for, but his episode on it's pretty excellent and very pretty well convincing. researched and very convincing. Exactly. So, um, I just want to give a shout out to John, John Oliver cause very binge worthy content that's on YouTube. Yeah. Um, but otherwise Zeke, I have not been watching very much at all. That's okay. That's <laughs> okay. The, week. the film of the week is only your ever homework, isn't it? That's true. That's true. But we try, Zeke. Yeah, try. look, I can't say I've watched too much either. I've caught uh, Bad Mums and Bad Mums 2, uh, which uh, <laughs> were adult comedies that came out in 2016 <laughs> and 2019, respectively, starring Mila Kunis, uh, Catherine Hahn, and, oh, always forget the third one. And Oh, Kristen Bell. Kirsten Bell. Oh, okay. Kirsten Bell. Um, they're fine. They're fine to bad. <laughs> the, the Christmas one sucks. The Christmas one? The second one is a Christmas special. Oh, okay. I thought it was like a third spin-off Christmas special. I, just, I don't know. I, I think the first one definitely probably made enough money to justify the second one, but the second one has no plot. It's just... It's sort of... I mean, I'm not even going to say put Anchorman 2 in the same category. Anchorman 2 has a plot. It's very loose, yeah. but it's there. Um, I will applaud as much as I don't very much appreciate the second Anchorman film. But it was interesting. It is interesting. And I was, I was a lot younger when I watched it, of course. But the interesting thing from that, from memory, is how they introduced this idea of when they first cover a high-speed chase. Yes. And it's like they kind of find out how to revolutionize news and make it exciting mm-hmm. again. And there is an aspect to that that's very interesting, even though it's not very funny at all. I think it's incredibly <laughs> funny. But <laughs> okay. um, perhaps Anchorman 2 needs to go under the, the scope. Um, so next countdown for the decades. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I got nothing really from them. They were perfect popcorn films. I was sitting there um, just switching my brain off. Yeah. Having a couple of drinks. And that was sort of pretty much, yeah, that was the perfect film. for that were, you, were you watching this film with Lucinda? I was. Well, okay. she was actually doing her assessment for a university. Okay. And I was basically just watching this in the background. She already seen the first one, watched the second one together. Right. I was like, that was not a good movie. Fair, fair um, enough. Uh, which is always a shame because I think a, a good adult comedy is quite difficult to find um, after you've watched all of the the good ones once. Mm, yeah, once, fair yeah. enough. You know, we can't I, always have the, the Tropic Thunder experience with no, an adult comedy. I, I have a feeling this year we're going to get some decent ones. Yeah. Some decent adult comedies. Crude. I, I wouldn't even say adult because that, that almost implies it's, it's overly sexual, but like crude very crude mature comedy yeah exactly mature yeah. comedies exactly Will Ferrell's a dog you never know Jennifer Lawrence trying to sleep with Dodgeball 17 year old yes sequel? I did what the hell's going on there when did that come where did that come from uh, was it was the whole thing that Vince Vaughn never wanted to do it and now he's signed on is that the whole because he's got no money <laughs> <laughs> he strikes me as an actor that's been in like 18 films in the last year but none of us have heard of them or seen them probably it's likely yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a Vince Vaughn enthusiast. I really enthusiast. like enthusiast. Yeah, it's a I strong think word. I can get behind Vince Vaughn. That noughties, late noughties period when he was seemingly in every four quadrant comedy. Right, like him and Owen Wilson were like ah oh, yeah, yeah, yeah hot swapping. 
Like four. Um, there's four holidays. Yep, four holidays. There's, that was, uh, there's um, Delivery Man. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of other films internship. with four in it. Oh yeah, I've um, seen the internship. Yeah, which I don't mind the internship. It's fine. Yeah, I work at Google, right? Yeah, yeah. I, it's oh, like an I saw it on a plane. Movie. I saw it yeah, on a plane. Yeah, literally. Movie. There you go. <laughs> I literally saw it on the plane. <laughs> the ultimate... I haven't been on a plane in ten years. There, and, there is definitely a subgenre of films that are like airplane movies. Like they're specifically for you. You, your best viewing experience is the airplane. My boss. Uh, this was several months ago. He did. Um, he went on a trip to Fiji and mm-hmm. brought the three sixty camera so I could edit together like a video out of it. And I was particularly fascinated by the footage he shot on the play because I could see the list of movies on the screen in the recording. And, of course, like, it looks terrible once I zoomed in, but uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Northman, several films that you would not watch on a plane. Terrible films to have on the plane. (laughs) Terrible. Like, I could give a list and put it up. There would be, like, the 10 films you should definitely watch on an airplane if they're available to you. Um, that's all I watched in the last week. Um, Fair enough. Career update. I'm still writing me script. Fair enough. Um, I'm still editing me film. Yeah. (laughs) It's right on the edge, Zeke. It is close where it's like, I'm now starting to outline who it needs to be outsourced to. Yes. So like, who's going to color it? Who's going to mix it? Blake's already working on the music. So that's kind of covered. It's at that stage. Um, I'm probably going to do most of the VFX stuff myself, but there will be a few shots that, Mm. I might need to outsource to someone, someone a bit better than myself. I know, I know it's shocking, but professionally qualified. That, that person does yeah. exist who's better than me. I wouldn't have believed it myself, to be honest. But <laughs> so humble, Jack. <laughs> Very well, humble. Well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. We're moving to the 1970s and our countdown through the decade retrospective. Mm. Jake, two films came out. Oh, well, two films were put up, and only one came out. What are we watching? That's true. I. Uh, Oh, that's right. It was a Clockwork Orange. I had to, <laughs> to dig deep in my brain for that one. That's what we're not doing, Zeke. This week on the show, we're watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Have in common are five, six I hope somebody's taking all this down. Yeah. What are we saying to each other? 
Although aliens begin to make their presence felt to humans, the government denies their existence. However, when Roy, an electrical lineman, encounters a UFO, he is drawn to the Wyoming wilderness. It's, oh, that's, yeah. I mean, it's accurate. I, I guess, yeah. It's it, such an interesting, it's mm. such an interesting, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I love that I see uh, first two credits for screenplay are Steven Spielberg and Paul Schrader. Always good to see Schrader yeah, in Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, I actually was meant to look into this more today. Yeah, apparently he wrote like an early draft of this and he's not even credited in the film as a writer. Wild. I was shocked by that. And Sh- he's IMDb, not in there. Schrader's hands on so many films in the 80s is mm. kind of like screenwriting credits. Right. It's crazy how many that man is involved with. Well, we did Taxi Driver episode 200, which yeah. of course he was a writer on. Um, this is what, a year later? <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Um, and especially because, like, you mentioned earlier, Zeke, with the, the the inspiration for Spielberg was the fact that when he was a kid, he once got, like, dragged into his car at night and taken to, you know, a crowded group of people trying to find something. And so there's that inspiration there. And there's the interview, I think that came out in 1994, where Spielberg wasn't even conscious of doing this, but an interview, interviewer pointed it out to him that the, the method of communication at the end of the film is an amalgamation of... Mm. The, the jobs that his mother and father did as respectively a musician and like a tech computer person, which of course is explored in the Fablemans as well. Uh, but the fact that like this digital sonic uh, keyboard or uh, digital music notes was the final method of communication. So there's a lot of aspects of this that make it very Spielbergian, especially in its inspiration where it came mm. from. So I was shocked to hear that like Paul Schrader just like walked in and wrote a draft of this. <laughs> That's on. You could easily just Google it. Just yeah. Google. You can read it. Um, I didn't read a lot of it, but it is very different from the the final film that we got. It's probably a more Schrader esque film. Mm. Um, yeah, Robert De Niro's in there shooting people. Bit drier. <laughs> Ethan Hawke, who would have been like a fetus at this point, <laughs> but he, he's got the little um, priest collar. Yeah, as as a fetus. Yeah, I still haven't seen First Reformed. Fantastic film. Which I got to do. It's such an interesting film because it does feel a little lost in the the Spielberg shuffle, I think, this film. People know the title but don't really know too much about the film. I know for a fact I was familiar with the title or the the phrase. didn't realise. That it was like an alien sci-fi film. Yeah, but... But nothing more than that until you saw it. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. And then you go, oh, it's a Spielberg film. Like, where did this fit in the timeline? And like we said... It's his second ever film. You know, this is this is Lucas's Star Wars, you yeah. know. Following. Well, to be well, fair, he did a couple of films before Jaws, but a lot of them were television films. Yes, like um, Jewel. Jewel, which actually I, I made some comparisons to this and Jewel because Jewel is also a film that is uh, filled with mystery and lack of motivation. Like, you don't know in Jewel what the motivation is behind chasing this guy. And th- there's a very similar element in this film, but... Taking it back to your point in terms of this kind of gets lost in the shuffle, 
I just checked. I've seen 15 Spielberg films. And obviously this film wasn't... Inc- and, you know, there's a few big ones like uh, Minority Report, AI, The Terminal. There's a few, like, the, the Jurassic Park sequels. There's a lot in there that, granted, I haven't seen yet. But, yeah, there's... I mean, that's 15 Spielberg films that came before this. And like I said earlier, I think in a lot of ways this is his most experimental. Coming okay. right off of Jaws, and like like I alluded to earlier, like like you said, he got the budget. He got more than double the budget for this film. Um, Richard Dreyfus is back, you know, yes. in the lead role here. Um, so there's that connective tissue there. But unlike Jaws, well, he, here's where I'm going to make the comparison. With Jaws, there's an aura of mystery in the opening scene where you have the couple and they run off into the beach. And that's its own, like, free act structure right mm. there, that little story. But once the shark attacks, we as an audience know what what the shark is in terms of what is the danger. And a lot of the tension from that com- film comes from the, from the audience knowing what the danger is, but the characters don't. And for this film, it very much holds onto that aura of mystery for the entire film. It's just scene after scene after scene after scene of weird happenings, characters not quite knowing what is going on, and completely driven by curiosity. And uh, and in the case of Richard Dreyfuss's character, nothing more than pure curiosity. Mm. And I think that's actually pointed out when... It, I think it's the French... I think his name's Claude. Um, that's one of the last lines in the film. He says, what do you want? That I actually wrote it down. Let me get the exact quote. Yeah, he says, what do you want? And he replies, I want to know if this is really happening. And I think as a main character, Roy, it's so interesting that that's how simplistic his yeah. entire goal is in this I mean, film. to the point where he's uh, detrimenting if, detrimentally affecting his relationship with yeah. his wife and his children. He estranges himself. It's that, he gets fired. Yeah, it's the fixation on the on the the greater cause or this... this singular goal and mm. and we can see um you know underlying references i know i've watched the spielberg documentary and there are there talks about the how this is sort of kind of a reflection of his workaholic dad sort of that fixation yeah. on that goal there's definitely that subtext there and having this person who's so fixated on answering that that ultimate question that's seemingly incomprehensible to answer mm. um even like you said up until this the last 30 minutes of the film which almost grinds you know we have this massive it almost completely crescendos and climaxes mm. and then it 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 plateaus it rests in this very slow and methodical communication there it takes yeah. its time it's not this big climactic battle or call to action or call to adventure it's yeah. It really is about. It has that arrival ploddingness. Yeah, it. yeah, and and the other thing about arrival is just this idea of communication. Yes, and it's so much of the film is about how do we communicate um, with this unknown entity, and that's where the music comes in and the hand signs and everything. And I'm I would love to get into that more, but to your point with the editing and that last thirty minutes, it's so. I mean, yeah, there's a point where you you realize like how quiet it's been and. Like, what am I waiting for? I don't know what I'm waiting for. I'm mm. waiting for something to happen, but I don't even know, are they going to come back? Are they going to disappear? Is there going to be another flash? Is there going to be another a musical note? And like I said, the whole film is filled with that sense of mystery right from the get-go, but that last half an hour in particular is, the editing is just immaculate. 
Mm. And I think Spielberg has come out and said, like, it was incredibly daunting editing the ending of this film. And I could see why. Because you're right. You want to hold on to that allure of mystery as long as possible. Well, and, and sort of the film hedges its bets on it because mm. it's not offering us anything else to grasp on other than answering that question. If it's yeah. under, if that interaction's underwhelming or is makes the viewer disinterested mm. or we lose our attention on it, the film kind of fundamentally falls apart. Well, exactly. Because I think watching this film... I was kind of... not. I wasn't underwhelmed at all. I, I actually... The more I think about it, the more I really appreciate what this film's doing and, again, what it says about Spielberg at the time. But it really is that mystery that's gripping you through every scene. Mm. And it's masterfully done. I mean, the opening shot is just this, like, fog of dust where you just... You can't see through it. And it's... And obviously, that first shot plays into Spielberg's, like, trademark camera movement and blocking where the, the vehicles come in, they get out of the vehicles and the camera like tracks them as they're walking towards the other group. Um, but then it's it's all those those practical elements as well where it's like you've got the 40s, I guess like fighter jets or, or mm. aerial planes, whatever you want to call them, um, that have, you know, spontaneously ended up 30 years in the future in the middle of... Um, I wrote this down. Oh, God. Uh oh, the Serrano Desert in Mexico. And that that's the other thing I really appreciate about this film as well, is it does both. Much like Contagent, where it's like, mm. here's this big thing that's affecting the world. We're going to have the insular look, which is like the suburban blackout that happens that night, and then all these, you know, family men and, and their families and the local community and then their, like, local governments and all of their responses. But then you have the wider worldview where you have scientists around the world travelling between Mexico and India... Um, What's the other one that I wrote down? Uh, oh, Mongolia, where they find the ship in the desert. So it's it's kind of got the best of both worlds, where you're seeing like the big grand scale mm. of it, but then also the insular effect on the small community. Yep. Yeah, and it, it, it is quite interesting, obviously. You know, Richard Dreyfuss is probably, you know, he's your lead character here, because yeah. we really see pretty much how he's affected. But, he, you know, he's not alone in that final interaction. No. You know, you've got... Terry Gar's uh, Ronnie, is it? Oh, Ronnie's the kid. The kid, sorry. I think it's Gillian. Gillian, right. Played by Melinda Dillon. That's it, yeah. Um, who kind of comes along in that latter half. It's almost because, obviously, in the early stages of the film, Dreyfus' character of Roy is not really abducted, but definitely touched mm. by an alien interaction. Yeah. Um, to a point where he starts to sort of see things there's some sort of psychological connection that has been made and that's another great thing when you look at the wide scope and then the insular scope of this film you have all the scientists and and the worldly people who are using science and math and logic to figure out you know the musical tones to communicate with the alien the the handprints and all of that but then you got the people who experience those close encounters who don't have any of those tools in their tool set but because of the the close connection you know, we see the sunburns that the characters are experiencing. We're seeing, um, you know, little Ronnie on the, I, I think it's a xylophone he's playing. That's a great cut where you realize the cosmic connection is enough for them mm. to to learn how to communicate as well. Um, or even just the obsession with the, I guess, the mountain, you would call it. It's like a volcanic shape mm-hmm. uh, that they all are sort of drawn to and can in, in visualize and I thought that was a really cool way to show the two different groups that all end up together at the end of the film. Yeah. Escape to Witch Mountain. Yes. 
I did oh, see Dwayne the Rock time Johnson. Since I've seen that. <laughs> saw that film once. Oh, that's um, a throwback. Ah, uh, sort of the same feeling. I mean, they're going to a mountain. <laughs> I, uh, I think that the the obsession of that, like you said, that curiosity, it's interesting. I mean, I have to ask, what do you yep. think the takeaway is? Obviously, I mean, Roy ends up essentially losing everything in yes. this film. Yes. Um, I was surprised by the ending. It's not a... That he succumbs to his curiosity and, yeah, loses it. He's, he's family, his family, his career, and, everything. Yeah. And... They just obviously don't paint that in a... It's not a very positive life. Like I said, it's a very disruptive life. Mm. I mean, he's not this secluded person that is driven... He, like I said, he, he ends up leaving his family behind to go satisfy this this curiosity. And yeah. what's, what's Spielberg trying to say with that? It's interesting because... And I really didn't want to bring this up too much because I wasn't thinking about this at all when I was watching the film. But apparently... There was an interview or a discussion that was had uh, from Villeneuve, of all directors, who talked about how this film almost kind of feels like Spielberg's ode to filmmaking. Mm. And this idea, if you if you compare the journey that Roy goes on as a creative, as someone who you know, is content in his life with his family, but as a line worker, he can't even convince his kids to go and see Pinocchio, you know, the magic he talks about there. And this is someone who who's given a taste of the unknown and, and this big spectacle and completely falls into that. I think you're right in the sense that the film doesn't... It definitely doesn't glorify it in a way. Mm. And that there's it's almost like a bittersweet ending because, you know, what was so wrong with his life that he had to abandon it? The one thing, and I kind of really wish it didn't go this way, is the relationship him and Jillian have, which at first seems super... It's very platonic and it's very much they're both bound by this intergalactic tie. Yeah. But then they kiss right at the end. And I just thought that was so lame. I was like... Dude, you have a wife. Why did they... Exactly. Why like, Why did they need to kiss? You have a wife and kids. That... That drives me nuts because, like, her motivation is very clearly, I need to get my son back. That is that is very clear. And then this man who also has this tie, you know, she he understands her, empathizes with her because he, he knows she isn't crazy and that... He really was kidnapped by this UFO that's been flying around, but I I didn't really buy that it's relationship. A handhold. That's what it should have been. Like it, a high- yeah, it's, it, I mean something that shows like they've just gone on a journey together. But the kiss just felt really awkward for me personally. And I think other yeah, I don't know. That's where it kind of threw me off because otherwise, I think his journey again is very unapologetic about it. And it's bittersweet that he chooses to abandon his life for this new yeah. found sense of curiosity. I totally see the filmmaking analog to this. And we talked about that with Inception, how a lot of people think, and I think Christopher Nolan himself admitted that it's a film about filmmaking. Um, this one, I don't think as much because like you said, there's the angle of being obsessed over the unknown and, and mm. greatness. Um, and this kind of ties us perfectly into the fact that there are multiple cuts for this film. There's the theatrical cut, the special edition, the director's cut, which drives me nuts that there's <laughs> so many of these different cuts. So I don't even get Ridley Scott. I don't even know if we watch the same movie, Zeke. I watched it off a DVD. Okay, interesting. So probably a theatrical, I imagine. Right. So I watched the version that's on Binge at the moment, and it was 112 minutes, which suggests that it is the special edition, it is the shortest version of the film. Um. However, I'm also confused because apparently this is the version where we see the inside of the mothership. 
which wasn't in my cut. And I'm very glad it wasn't. Mm. I think Spielberg's right in that we really shouldn't see the inside of that no. mothership. It should remain a mystery. So you didn't see the inside of the mothership? No, okay. just the blinding lights. We possibly watched the same cut. And the noodle, the noodle aliens. <laughs> well, that's a great segue as well, is the aliens, we do get a good glimpse of them. And that, I think that's where the commercial audience are pleasing side. If this was true yeah. sci-fi auteur you know, wanting to keep you in the dust, you wouldn't even see the aliens, I reckon. No. But not only do we see the aliens, they're little green men. Yeah. Now, I had to look this up, because I was like, did Spielberg invent the little green men, like, stereotype for aliens? And he most certainly did not. That's been around for a while. It was specially visualized in, like, 50s comic books and things like yeah. that. So it was very established by this time, the the stereotype of little green men being the outer space aliens. But it sort of makes sense in the film. In, in, like not in a like I'm not going to sit here and go oh I'd, I'll defend the the choice of alien but why not make it like yeah. that I mean in the context of this film it doesn't really matter what the alien looks sure, like sure sure as long as they don't look like a human yeah and yeah. look I'm not I'm not criticizing it one way or the other I was just very interested to be like oh he kind of went with the stereotype and maybe it would have been distracting if it was like overly different from well, what our minds can interpret as an as, alien as you said there's such a heavy emphasis on communication however take another film that emphasizes communication which is Villeneuve's arrival yep. we see the aliens very quickly mm. but we see like the ink you know yeah, obviously behind this 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 panel and stuff yep. and they're not very explicit or clear but um communication is at the forefront so early on I mean it, it takes place the landing site is already established the mm. The mission's already established. It's pretty clear-cut that communication is basically the forefront of that film. It's the driving yep. purpose of that film. Whereas yep. in this, it's the pursuit to the moment of communication. Um, yes. We're following Roy on his journey to kind of work out where to be at that point in time. And like yep. you said, it's that melding of the world, the science, and logical thinkers, and, and those who just have that... That instinct, almost. That instinct, yeah. And... Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing to have this humanoid-esque alien that is just mm. a green man. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just, uh, I just wanted to talk about that because I thought it was interesting that Spielberg very much, like, it's to the point where this film is so iconic. I had to check if Spielberg created the little green man stereotype, and he obviously didn't. Um, but it was interesting to see his choice, you're right, to stick with that, so to speak. Um, what do you make out about the others who they get the option to go with them that sort of inferral there i think oh with the last group of people walk out yeah okay um well and the fact that they they didn't go in the ship well aren't they in the end there isn't that they're in in inference that some of them are being offered to go on the ship like some of them come out sure but i i always saw the interaction of others like right go along with them and join them. Right. Well, I think the main thing is that Roy does. Yeah. That he chooses... He's selected almost. And he chooses to go in and abandon his lifestyle. Um, so what, what do you reckon that is all about? I think... I definitely respect... In terms of a character arc, I really respect that he he does it. You know, there's no half-handed... I mean, I was thinking that in the last act of the film when they're hanging over the rocks watching the whole sort of ritual of the, the spaceships flying around... 
I was thinking, like, are we going to get the ending where he comes back and his family's forgiven him? And I was still thinking that was <laughs> there was a chance that that's how the movie ends. Nope. So, so now he's just single mother. I I think it's all yeah. <laughs> that's going to be the sequel. Is uh, her realizing like I think my husband's dead. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, look, I think it's a ballsy move, and I think it definitely invokes more conversation, especially when it starts rolling, the spaceship flies away, and the credits start rolling, mm. and it's not like we cut the credits, they, they, um, the credits appear over the spaceship flying, so we still kind of have that feeling of, wow, I just went on this journey, and now I don't know where Roy's going from here, obviously somewhere far and potentially greater. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really is just one of those ways where let's end the film on this note because it's going to make people really like think about ma- maybe what they would do in that scenario. Yeah. And like maybe our attachment to our own lives in general, you know, I mean, we think about our lives and it's like we have family and friends and partners and goals and jobs and all sorts of things. And, you know, what is the thing that would make us so obsessed to abandon all of that? Yeah. And I don't think they're, I mean, at the moment, I don't think there is anything, but maybe maybe something does come out that I become so obsessed with that it drives me to that point of complete isolation from society. <laughs> I mean, hey, there you go. That's, that's I guess, the inferral of what Spielberg did. I mean, we, we went from Amadeus to this, and they, they've got very similar. <laughs> a trying to achieve greatness. Zeke, I have several little details because this is one of those mm. films where like, every five minutes I was just right. oh, that's a cool little detail, that's a cool little shot, that's a cool little thing here. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to spitfire a bunch of this stuff yep. your way. Um, I love that once uh, Jillian and Roy find the mountain, mm. it's sort of in the background of many of the exterior shots, much like the Mount Rushmore heads in the background of North by Northwest and a lot of the third act of that film, which I thought was a nice uh, subtle note that it's calling back to. Um, I love that the scene where they see the mountain on the television, that obviously we're, we're in a cutting between Roy's reaction and Jillian's reaction to seeing that on the television, mm. but I love that they're both framed left and the TV's framed right on both shots. So it, they physically aligned the framing. It's not like they're kind of shot reverse shotting it. Yeah. It's kind of just shot, shot <laughs> with no reversal, which I really thought was interesting. Um, the male energy, the pure male masculine energy of like six people trying to carry a globe <laughs> in one go, <laughs> trying to unclip it out of its stand, and <laughs> talk about it's fifteen hundred dollars. I mean, that's like that's like fifteen thousand dollars yep. now <laughs> due to inflation. Oh Christ! I thought that was funny. Um, was there was there something in Spielberg's contract about? having multiple shots where road signs are shaking furiously. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought the shaking road sign budget was pretty wild. There was a lot of council uh, <laughs> people getting their, their hands on it. Exactly. They really wanted to show their hard work. Like, <laughs> oh, even a spaceship from out of this world can't break this stop sign <laughs> out of place. None of them fly, but they do wiggle around a lot. Exactly. Um this is another detail I love, and we could talk about John Williams' score, which is mm. just immaculate. Um, I love the subtle difference between the musical cues that the humans are doing, which is kind of soft and cutesy, and it almost mm. sounds like a flute. And then the the brass return from the ship that's already this like looming, over-assuming presence 
uh, intimidating presence, so to speak. And I love that it's like a brass, sharper uh, sound that they're making back, which is interesting. Um, what do we think about the scene? Well, let, let's talk about Barry as a character, the young boy. Let's yes. talk about him in general. Because like you mentioned earlier, there's definitely some sort of psychological connection he has with the UFO. Mm. I think it's um Illinois. No, it's not Illinois. Where is Indiana? I'm thinking of Indiana. Very Spielbergian town. <laughs> what's what's your make with and I think part of this as well is that it's a young boy. So it's more empathetic, there's there's more danger mm. because this is someone who isn't quite as as clever or self reliant as any of the adults in the same room. But what do you think about the iconography of like that boy being the sort of the centerpiece, the poster child of this film. I mean, it sort of was alluding at a trend that would happen, I guess, in, in ladder films, I mm. guess with ET and stuff. I mean, yeah. we're starting to see that kid voice coming through. I, I think that films like this were starting. We, like you said, we're, we're starting to authentically hear the, the Spielberg alter voice, mm. you know, Jaws, Duel, they're, they're about, you know, prey and predator yep. films. And they're fun and entertaining films. And we're seeing some stylistic choices that start to, we now start to hold Spielberg to account. But mm. this feels like the first Spielbergian film. Right. You know what I mean? Like that. The mystery and the, the wonder. In mystery and wonder. And, and through, the, through the sh- perspective of a young child, yeah, it's, it's exemplified. Yeah, yeah and uh, even having those those shots where it's still at his perspective, his eye yep. line, and yep. having him take in that scene, that's so important. Mm. Um, even in, in other films, you know, with Roy's kids and how they see the, the fighting between the parents and yeah, screaming. Yeah. Um, you know, when Roy's wife is screaming at him while he's in the, the, the bathroom and the boy's at the door sort of seeing it or yeah. unfold. Um, I think that's... I made a boo-boo earlier because I said Ronnie is, is sorry, is, yeah, Roy's wife. And I accidentally said that Ronnie was the child, even though the child's name's Barry. So I got that wrong earlier. Just wanted to clarify mm-hmm. that for the audience. Kerry Goof. Goofy. Mm, goofy. Barry Wheeler. <laughs> but that's a good segue, actually, because let's talk about that family now, the, uh, the Neary family. Because there's a line that his wife says at one point, and I'm actually this is this almost makes the ending more surprising that they don't give a satisfying conclusion to mm. this. When he initially drags the family out to the side of the road to try and you know find another sighting of the UFO, and she says something to him along the lines of, "I miss when you used to when we used to look at each other. Yeah, we would go out here and look at each other, not necessarily the sky or at mm. other things, and or being distracted. And you know we have the." Like I said, he seems content in his life, Roy, but there is a, a level of chaos within the family, especially next morning. Again, Spielberg's mm. great blocking. you got the kid in the corner playing the piano, slamming the keys, and that's going over the arguing and the fighting and uh, whatnot. But then that scene itself is juxtaposed by the dinner scene where it's so much more quiet. And what, it's not my highlight scene, but I absolutely love that scene where Roy just... He's you know carving his, I think, mashed potatoes into the shape of the volcano, mm. which is being parodied to death on The Simpsons, for example. Um, and he just has a breakdown. He just starts crying because I think he realizes how bad this obsession of his has gotten yeah. in the way of his family. And the, they're all just kind of 
shocked. But again, going back to that initial line of like, I, you know, I miss when we used to come out here and just look at each other. That's not paid off. That's like an anti-payoff. No. Because he still abandons them. <laughs> yeah. And he like full abandons them. He goes right yeah. down the rabbit hole. Yeah. He's off to another planet. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, he's the I aliens don't are like, you want to come? And he's like, anymore. see ya. Yeah, I'm see out. Ya. Who needs to be a dad? I'm just going to kiss some other, some other woman and then leave. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we like, we've, you know, we've talked about the Fablemans on the show and I yes. brought up the Spielberg documentary and there was that resentment for his father there and yep. everyone I think has done to death like analyzed that oh Spielberg films have really bad father figures. And right, yeah, in yeah. this film Or no father figure at all, like an E. T. Yeah. Yeah. Or then <laughs> But that goes back to when we're talking about Barry, you're saying like looking through the lens of a child, which is obviously more scary from mm. this standpoint. But the fact that Everything about the inspiration for this film that came from Spielberg sort of implies that he is the younger child role in this film mm. and that, you know, the the protagonist, Roy, is based on his own father to some degree. So it's interesting that none of the kids, because none of, none of Roy's kids really have that strong of a personality or role in the film other than to just, like, create this unity of family or lack a unity of a family. And then on the other end, you got Barry who I don't think speaks a word in the film. Or he says bye at the end. He says bye to the, the mothership. Yeah. Uh, but is otherwise very quiet and sort of is distanced from Roy and the, and the and Roy's character. So I find it interesting that despite the inspiration coming very much from Spielberg's childhood, that he really doesn't make it obvious which character he's projecting himself onto. I think he's quite removed from the material. He's mm. you know picking and choosing. His father may, may represent Roy. But he's not representing himself. And I think, you know, it takes many, many more decades for him to do that in the Fablemans. I guess he just wasn't ready at the time or doing it subconsciously. But yeah, I, I think that's yeah. very interesting. Another detail I really wanted to point out. And again, just great plants and payoffs. The fact that they all see the spotlight. Oh my God, it's the UFO. And it turns out to be the helicopter. The other one is the plant and payoff of when he pulls over at the start of the film and the car behind him. Pulls up and then goes around, calls him an asshole. But then the second time it happens, it's the spaceship and it starts flying up. That's just brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant visual storytelling. Oh. And then he gets a sunburn. <laughs> a sunburn at night. Who yes. Funk it. <laughs> a night burn. Oh, goodness. Um, it's a great film. Oh, it's a great it's, film yeah. that really sets the precedent for what we're about to see, particularly going into that early 80s, early mid-80s Spielberg, where a yep. lot of that is based around that wonderment and really kind of comes to its its head by the time it gets to 93 with Jurassic Park. You know, we're about mm. to watch 15 years basically unfold of yeah. non-stop wonder and exploration and entertainment. And, you know, there are there are deviations there, obviously, like, like we were brought up, I think off the show was The Color Purple comes out in 85 and that's yep. the first major melodrama deviation. But I really want to check if he did anything. I'm just blanking. Oh, well, he would have done Raiders of the Lost Ark between yep. this and E.T. But I do want to ask you, Z, before we get into our highlight scene, which do you think is better between this film or E.T.? Gee, that's a toughie, isn't it? Because <laughs> I'm not like... I didn't grow up with E.T. I watched E.T. as an adult. I watched Close Encounters as an adult. Sure. Um, I think... 
as a piece of sci-fi, this this film is exceptional in mm. terms of it actually explores the concepts of what we think and what we really know a sci-fi film to be. I think yeah. in the same year to have Star Wars come out, which is such a fast-paced, uh, full, fantastical science fiction film. Yeah, it's almost more action-y. Yeah, which is definitely more the, the popcorn science fiction film. And what, for the most part, science fiction has become. Mm. Um, whereas this film is, is way more reserved and, and obviously explores it. I probably would lean towards E.T. Mm, interesting. Because it's, it's just... A, the, I think things like the score and the cinematography oh, and yeah. E.T., I think we're really starting to hit Spielberg at his very, very best. By yeah. the time we get to Spiel, um, Spielberg E.T. era, whereas this is, we're still discovering what he can do. Yeah, it's like you said, and I agree with you that I think this feel, this is the tr- his true first like Spielbergian feeling movie. Yeah. There is that that magic. I mean, Jaws is a fantastic film, but it doesn't have magic. No, in the same way that this film has, or E.T. has, or um, any of these films like Jurassic Park, for example. Um, I I would say I think E.T.'s a better film. There's nothing wrong with saying that. He, he made it afterwards. <laughs> He's yeah. learning and building on his craft. But I think Close Encounters does definitely appeal more to fans of sci-fi and the unknown. For sure. E.T., I mean, the alien is a character in of itself. And it's very cutesy, and you've got the narrative through the kid's perspective, and the, there's great direction there in terms of... You don't, you don't even see the head of an adult character for, like, the first mm. two-thirds of the film. There's great, great, excellent storytelling and direction in that film. Um, but I think between Close Encounters and E.T., it's a great exploration because they're very similar ideas. You're exploring very similar themes. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's an interesting comparison. Zeke, what is your highlight scene for Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Um, I'm going to avoid using the, the, the final climactic scene shortly because sure. I just think um, it's probably too easy to pick. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I got you. I like the bit when, you know, Roy's, the, Roy decides, like he has this almost this eureka moment and he builds this absolute monolith out of clay <laughs> and, and that moment of discovery. But like... The connection when he looks at the TV and then like has that that full eureka moment. We yep. start to see those a little bit more in Spielberg films. We see them in the Indiana Jones films, which you know uh, have become contextually relevant again. Obviously, with the new film the coming, new coming out, out. yeah. Um, I think that is just a great sequence. Mm. Um, even the first contact scene, you know, like you said in the pickup truck, that's such a great scene when the big harsh light comes yeah. over the top and. The way that scene builds is is fantastic. With the lighting is impeccable. Yes, in this film, and actually, a lighting is a big part of the reason why my highlight scene is the scene when Barry is is abducted. Yeah, it's so good, and it's like it's a perfect example of like how to build tension. But the characters are smart because you've got Jillian who's you know shutting every single window and the fireplace and locking all the doors and everything. It's like it's it it's not like something silly. That eventually snuck in, and the fact that is, you got a child who's curious, who's like cosmetically connected to this thing mm. in a, in a way that's never fully explained in the film, which I love that it's not explained. Um, that is attracted to the ship, so it's not even just the physical danger of that; it's the emotional danger of 
he's trying to get out and see this spectacle. Mm. But then the way that she's turning off all the practical lights and then it completely changes the mood, the physical lighting and mood of the scene because these harsh oranges and blues are now like peeking through all the curtains and windows and it's just visually spellbinding. Spill, spillbinding. 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 <laughs> Closing Counters of the Third Kind is currently out on Binge. Yes. Speaking of Binge, Jake, what is new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Are you a fan of Bridgerton, Zeke? Did I've, you ever watch it? I, yeah, one girlfriend ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. A yes. long time ago. Yes. Like, maybe two, three... When the first season came out, I watched... Right. It was New Year's Day 20, what, 2021, 2022, okay. whatever. Whenever that happened. <laughs> it must have been 2021 because yeah, there been. is a Bridgerton joke in Death to 2021. Which yes. is a horrible, horrible film. Yeah. But I wanted to mention that. Um, yeah, I watched the first season, thought it was trash. Move on. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Zeke, if you thought that was trash, you're sure to love Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. The prequel spinoff coming to Netflix this week. So they're stealing the Star Wars naming convention. A Bridgerton story? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's it was better very ways to do that. I, I don't know. Uh, also coming to Prime this week, you've got the Hobbit trilogy, as well as the Survivor thriller film Fall. Mm. Now, coming to cinemas, you got one giant Hollywood film, Zeke. Yes. And then about 50 million little small films that are all trying to tackle it down. It's like Bowser and Super Mario Brothers and then all the little penguin characters. Made a billion bucks. To, made a... Yeah. A billion bucks. It's uh, fair enough. It's enjoyable. Kids like it. We don't get enough of those kinds of films anymore. Good marketing. Good timing. Yeah. Great visuals. Nice little story about brotherhood and, you know, against all odds. Yeah, we're, we're, This isn't a Mario review. <laughs> no. The big film I'm talking about is, of course, of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Ooga chaka. Ooga chaka. I can't stop this feeling. Beautiful. We got copyrighted for that. Oh, no. That's all right. It's not like we make much money from this podcast anyway. <laughs> Zeke. Yeah. Neither of us have seen an MCU film in a couple of years now, at least. I know. And if if, if one was to, like, bring you out of... Out of hibernation. Out of hibernation, <laughs> it's probably this film. You reckon? Oh, look. I mean, I think the first... It's, you know what? It's People are weirdly anti this film, and I don't... Quite, okay. I don't know what it is. Is like, it a James Gunn thing? Maybe it's a James Gunn thing, but like... Because apparently him like redoing the horrible DC universe thing they've tried is apparently bad. Yeah. Oh God, we need an eighth Henry Cavill Superman is film. Because they, they, they didn't get it right the first seven times, Zeke. But this time they're going to do it. It's like, shut up. Yeah. Like He made a pretty good Suicide Squad film. Let him do... Yeah, it was funny. Yeah. Um... I think it's it's interesting because you know everyone's like, oh, this is the darkest MCU film in the the MCU branding, and it's got the first okay. f bomb. And oh, I did I did read people about that, are yeah. dying, gonna die, but they're gonna proper die. Like, and I'm, but are they really gonna proper die? <laughs> that's that's. I think question. a lot of them are kind of. I think a lot of these actors are done too. I think what we're well, the contracts are surely up. I think we live in this world now where, I mean, geez, we'll look at what's happened with Jonathan Majors. There goes their next big villain. <laughs> it's just been completely... I'm low-key. Look, I'm not going to... I don't want people to get mixed up when I say this, but I kind of think it's hilarious It was that funny. he's going to have to get fired now and, I think... and like they're scram... Because I just don't care anymore. 
I don't care about the MCU. I find well, it hilarious that Disney like have to figure out this social climate now. It's so funny because I'm I completely have lost. I don't even have a finger on any pulses that have to do with Disney. Yeah. You know, like Mandalorian season three is finishing this week. I think it's or done. It's, I think it's, or it's, it's just well done. done. Yeah, and I've heard watched, it's not great. Um, <laughs> I haven't watched it at all. all. Didn't watch Andor at all on the Star Wars front. I mean, God knows how many of these MCU shows. There's, I haven't. They're touched doing any. another Ray movie. Is it okay? Did you hear about that? No. They're doing, this they're, is how little on the pulse, the pulse I am. Yeah, yeah. It, they're basically doing Ray thirty years after episode nine. And Daisy Ridley's back, even though I even though I could have swore she was like would do anything else in the world than be in another Star Wars movie. But notice that these guys can't get enough work to justify, and the paychecks. It's the paychecks, isn't it? They'd all come I, back. I guess it just that blows my mind. I imagine working on that sequel trilogy. Yeah, but what's Daisy Ridley? That sounds like, like a horrible experience. I know, but like, what's Daisy Ridley been in? To justify anything else, you know? I just... <laughs> chaos Walking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the wonderful oh, Chaos Walking. It's, you know, they're just... Everyone they're... was walking out of that one. We're, we're, I think the problem is we're That's in the mean. world and it's so cool we're going back into the 60s next week because we can probably build on this conversation from there. Yeah. But we are now at the end of the superhero era, much like we were at the end of the Spaghetti Western. We're just in the way station waiting for the next thing. <laughs> but we don't know what the next thing is. Mm. Um, I mean, Christ, The Hunger Games has got a prequel trailer that's dropped I this week. I actually am low-key excited for that. I, oh don't, I don't know why. We're out of ideas. I d- <laughs> Surely, what's the next thing? I remember hearing that like over the years. Like, oh, there's a new Hunger Games book being written. Oh, it's out. They're making a movie. but And then like it did not hit me until the trailer came out. Yeah, I mean, Christ. I like, I mean- the Hunger Games IP is kind of cool. Yeah, it's a really cool movies, IP. They, I don't know how they great rushed, the And are. this is the thing that annoyed me, is they rushed those films, so those films got considerably worse. That like, There's only four of them, and I can honestly say at least two of them are crap, and then one of them's okay, and then mm. one's good. The first one's good. Mm. And that's it. But they rushed them because they were too busy. They were just greedy and money, and then they had Divergent and Maze Runner all running at the same time, and... And then in this this wave of superheroes, you know, everyone's done. Like, I feel like Guardians is the final nail in the coffin. What is left that makes us want to come back and watch more? I mean, yeah. how many elves have they had in a row now? Seriously. I mean, multi, multi. I, I do. I'm with you in the sense that I feel like this would be the one. Like, if the last few lost money, I don't think they necessarily did. But say the last few, like four, Love and Thunder, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, all the Ant-Man, all the... I can't believe those are all movies that are out. Yeah. That we just don't... I did see Doctor Strange and I thought it was bad. Most people Real did. Bad. But um, I think this is the one that potentially is the one that doesn't lose money. If you know what I mean. Like, yeah, compared to all those. But they're not going to go, oh, like, this will be the one that doesn't make enough to really justify keep doing this. But they'll right. just keep doing it until the next big thing comes. Because... Yeah. That's how cinema works. They they ran noirs into the ground. They ran spaghetti westerns into the ground. They mm. ran musicals into the ground. Mm. Um, and, you know, then the 80s came along and it was all about real war films and then those got, like, they had passed their point and yeah. by the 90s and then aughts, I guess it was like, what, high school drama films maybe? or <laughs> Rom- The rom-com. Yeah, rom-coms. And it's like... But even those, like, kind of have a resurgence through streaming now. 
Yeah. But um, I'm with you. It's, it's superheroes. That's e- that's easily the next target. It'll I, probably be a good film. And it, it probably will see off a lot of these actors because I think a lot of them are done yeah, because they can sure. make money elsewhere. They don't need to keep coming back to the well if they don't really yeah. want to. Chris Pack can do Super Mario Brothers too. He literally can do pretty much anything Sorry, with that voice, apparently. <laughs> it's just I didn't hate the voice. That's all I'm going to say. I did not hate um, the voice. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that if anything was going to tide me over a little bit, if someone messaged me tomorrow and said, hey, Jake, do you want to see Guardians this weekend? I'd be like, all right, fine. Yeah. But I will say this. It, I enjoyed the first one. I did not like the second one at all. That's a contra, but it's divisive. That it is divisive. One. But Some people to, really like But second. to that point, it's like that makes me not nearly as excited about seeing the third one. Yep. It could be an Iron Man situation where like the third one's better than the second one and... Yada yada. I don't know. So many of these films were just not that good, though. I do not understand the steam that. But right. then maybe we could look back on the spaghetti western genre, and a lot of spaghetti westerns were just average, yeah. and we only ever talk about the best ones. Well, I mean that's that's cinema period. Yeah. I mean you you go to, you go. I mean the thing is it was a lot less multiplexes in the seventies. True. So you go to the cinema and you got Close Encounters and Star Wars coming out in the same week. I mean that's a, an, an anomaly right there that those two come out the same week, but. I'm sure there were tons of other films that came out that same year that nobody ever talks about again. Mm. I reckon, because don't Oppenheimer and Barbie come out on the same day? They do. They do. I reckon you when you go with a group of 10 people, half of you just wears all pink, and the other half of you dresses like you're in a black and white film. <laughs> well, I've said, i gotta, I got to wear the black and white suit, 1940s gangster to Barbie, and in the pink suit to Oppenheimer. <laughs> yep. That's how you do it, everyone. You in a pink and you got to watch I'm it on the same that. day. Can that be on the premiere of Skin and Blister too? You wearing a pink suit. <laughs> I wear the pink suit. I'm here for that. There's a there's a photo from eight years ago, my year twelve ball, where I was doing some sort of like weird jig on camera, and the guy next to me, Colin, my mate, is wearing a pink suit. In That's that respect. In that, it's respect. it was very respectful. You can see we've padded for time to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's been a while since we've talked about the MCU. I feel like, and this is a film that you're right could maybe tied the ship in terms of this one does okay yeah. but I think you're right it's not going to reinvigorate any excitement it's the ending Yeah. if you I like mean, this film it's I like, think well, the that, major, that's, what's that's happened it, with the stuff. major stuff really ironclad I don't think they'll go on and yeah sure they'll recast but it will just show just another another, another loss that's exactly it damn, just let it go man just let it go yeah. start making new original let stuff let it go well speaking of original stuff there's several other films coming out this week that hopefully uh you know, pick and prod mm. at Guardians Volume 3, potentially. We have Masquerade, which sees an attractive dancer, Adrian, whose career is shattered by a motorcycle accident. His idol life is soon changed when he meets Margot, a scam artist. Mm. But Zeke, is it part of the wider Masquerade cine- cinematic universe? It might be. I just, I'm not going to watch it unless it is. The Inspection sees a young, gay, black man attempt to prove himself to his estranged mother by joining the Marines and doing whatever it takes to succeed in a system that would otherwise cast him aside. It's like a... It's a Moonlight Goes yep. to War. <laughs> moonlight Goes to War. The Survival of Kindness is an Australian film and follows a black woman who wakes up abandoned and locked inside a cage in the middle of the desert. The trailer for this played in front of Bo is Afraid. It looks awesome. Really? Just like visually, the tone. It's like really interesting. Interesting. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, Cairo Conspiracy sees the son of a fisherman 
offered the privilege to study at a university in Cairo, the center of power in sunny Islam. However, he inadvertently becomes the pawn in a conflict between Egypt's religious and political elites. Sounds... Spicy. Spicy, exactly. Doped, The Trip of a Lifetime, is a documentary on a loving mother who's granted the legal right to medical use of magic mushrooms and embarks on a courageous journey of personal transformation. Screens tomorrow on May the 2nd at Luna with a Q&A panel with experts on psychedelics. Very interesting. Very experimental. Yeah. I think she's wearing... What's the little... The eye shape... When you go to bed or when you're on a plane, it's not like a... It's not like a... Eye mask. Yeah, eye mask. Yeah. She's wearing an eye mask, but like there's images on it. It's almost like a VR mask. That's the poster. It's very interesting. Very creepy. And this last one, I was shocked to realize, is actually not a documentary. Uga... UN Women Ukrainian Appeal. She's a 15-year-old gymnast torn between training in Switzerland to prepare for the Olympics and Kev, where her mother works as a journalist. This is also a one-time screening at Luna this Wednesday, the 3rd. I could have swore it was a doco, but it's a drama, Zeke. I'm guessing it's a dramatic doco. It's a, <laughs> I'm guessing based on a true story. So yeah, hopefully all of those pick and prod at the Guardian's budget Collectively, they're still not going to make as much money, so it's unfortunate, but it is what it is, Zeke. It is what it is. Well, as I alluded to earlier, we're moving into the 1960s for our Mm. countdown through the decade retrospective. Jake, it's also a director's corner. Yes, it is. Very exciting. 225. And we put two directors up with two of their films. Who won the poll and what are we watching? Well, it's funny because we'll we'll talk about the poll in a minute because I was shocked. We've never done an Alfred Hitchcock director's corner. Wild. Now, we put up The Birds as one of the films. It got destroyed. Absolutely annihilated. So we'll do Hitchcock some other time. Yes. But when it comes to 1960s director's corners, you kind of feel like it should be a spaghetti western. Yes. And we've already done a Sergio director's corner. (laughs) So, uh... Makes sense that we uh, went with a different Sergio. So next week on the show, Zeke, we're talking about Sergio Cabucci and his film Django. A century ago on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared. A man with a sad, impenetrable face. Django! Django, have you never that man what was his secret it's not important and if i bothered you will you accept my apology he was pitiless in revenge quick to decide and a master of every weapon a man everybody would like to have seen dead yeah his name is Django. Django, the title of a film you'll never forget. 
Set on the USA-Mexican border just after the Civil War, Django, an ex-Union soldier, wrecks bloody vengeance on the Ku Klux Klan. So, this is a pretty important director, if you like Tarantino, which, judging by the polls, I think you do. <laughs> the power of Tarantino. I do believe 24 it. to 9, Zeke. Yeah. Hitchcock uh, got smeared in the floor. Steamrolled, as they say. Kuichi's kind of someone that's a bit of an enigma to you and mm. I. We have not really touched on any Kabuchi films. Right. We did Sergio Leone, episode 40, way, way back. So another excellent spaghetti western in the, the greatest 60s. Spaghetti, spaghetti western of all time. Absolutely phenomenal the west. film. It, it cannot be beaten. I'm sorry. I think Django is going to be an amazing film and mm. a great experience, but that man will always have my heart of the west. So, no, But let's enough. see if it can be challenged. Or Unchained. I don't like Django and Django Unchained that much. Really? Yeah, I don't like that. That's my first Tarantino film. Wow. <laughs> it was, yeah. I'll try and watch Kill Bill next week. Finally. I've never watched Kill Bill. <laughs> but I'll Kill Bill's great. See if I can get more than one Kabuchi film. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Massage Show Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Sergio Kabuchi's Django. <laughs>